Hi everyone, my name is Mark. And my name is also Mark. And welcome to The Marketing Show. Uh, we're a couple of marketing guys who are passionate about the craft and always hungry to learn more. So we're really excited to have you along on our learning journey. Each week, we'll lean into a new marketing concept to understand a greater piece of the puzzle. On today's episode, we have restaurant marketing. Woohoo! Mark, do you want to uh, take us through some of the fundamentals of restaurant marketing? Yeah, so I think, you know, marketing for a restaurant... It always has the same six P's, but I think how you manipulate those P's or those fundamentals is going to be different. And there are some that stick out a little bit more than others for restaurants. So first of all, we have portfolio and and how you use your portfolio to structure a better mix for your restaurant, especially when you sell food that has low margin. We've also got the importance of core. We always talk about core, but here it's almost got a bit of a double meaning because it's your core offering from a food point of view and what dishes, but also what else you, you have and, and that trade-off between what your USP is, whether it's good service, but also um, sort of just what you need to have on your menu being the type of restaurant that you are. Um, location and how that influences your offering. Uh, digital touch points and, and what are the really successful restaurants doing in the digital space uh, from a marketing point of view. Distribution and, and its role in, in restaurants from both a booking but an experience point of view as well. Uh, and then finally, the importance of third party and awards. Yeah, nice one. Um, why don't we kick off with portfolio structure first? I think uh, one of the most important parts of any portfolio is understanding how you're going to structure your gross margin. And within restaurants, with so many things going and so many inputs going to the business, really important to see where your margin priorities lie. Um, some one of the most important ways to or most accessible ways to uh, build a nice portfolio structure for your restaurant is to understand that. Uh, alcohol, for example, is uh, one of the highest gross margin selling items and understanding how you can shift your portfolio to make sure that you're pushing those items as much as possible. Yeah, I think the alcohol thing is really interesting because we've all been to a restaurant where you're not allowed to bring your own wine in and the, the price for wine at the restaurant is extremely high. It might be a bottle that costs $20 outside of the store in your local liquor store, all of a sudden costs 60 70 80 or more in the restaurant. And I, I think I call this the Disneyland effect myself, because if you go to Disneyland and you want to eat food, you have to eat the food at Disneyland and they can name their price. So it's, it's really, really fascinating to look at because, uh, there's one part of you that says, well, I'm not willing to pay that, but in the moment and the experience and going to a restaurant can be quite an emotional experience. Often people will pay it and they know that, and that's how they're supplementing, um, potentially low margins on their food. Exactly. And it's, it's hard because sometimes you'll see on Instagram really uh, flashy items or really um, exotic uh, food items with lots of different layerings that can be used to entice people into the restaurant. But oftentimes because you have an item that may, may use many different ingredients and may be quite exotic and also take a lot of time and resource in the kitchen to actually prepare, those items may not be actually where you're generating a lot of your items, uh, a lot of your gross margins. So mm. it's, I think it brings us to a really important, uh, another really important element, which is bundling. So understanding yes. how you can build a portfolio through little different bundling strategies to increase your gross margin. Yeah, I think the, the restaurants that are run really well as a business really get bundling and cross-selling as well. So understanding that their most popular dish might be avocado on toast at a cafe, but they might not make much money on avocado on toast, or, although maybe they are, because I think the average price for avocado toast in <laughs> Sydney is like $18. It's, it's constantly inflating. <laughs> but as an example, say that's a really low margin. What the really great restaurants are able to do is, is 
cross sell you something else to go with your avo and toast whether it's side orders like bacon for four dollars per piece of bacon or or extra mushrooms for another five dollars they're really good at cross selling that um it's almost like additional features when you buy a car isn't it you buy the base model but then you add all the extras on top and that's where they make the money um so so bundling and cross selling i think plays a plays a huge role here yeah, and then you um you also I guess from a cafe perspective you also understand how that portfolio can work with uh, different juices as well. So for example, people coming in for breakfast having a coffee to start, but then maybe a juice with their meal as well, um, and also maybe increasing the idea of a second coffee mm. after brunch as well, which I know you and I Mark are both quite guilty to <laughs> indulging in. Um, but also from a uh, dine in restaurant perspective as well for dinner. Um, oftentimes with alcohol, uh, drinks will come beforehand and maybe afterhand as well. Um, and that'll kind of help uh, balance out some of the, the margin requirements mm. of building a nice portfolio as well. Especially when some of those uh, items from the wine list, for example, might come from far-reaching places, which mm. may incur a little bit of an on-cost on the menu as well. Exactly. And, and businesses can actually differentiate themselves on these high-margin products like wine. They can become known for their wine list and seller that they have available and therefore, it's a reason for people to go there and then they actually end up spending disproportionate amounts of money on their wine versus their meal, which almost comes as the secondary offering. But I think one of the things that we've spoken about before as well that really plays plays a role here in margin is, is locally sourced ingredients. So how do great restaurants, and I know that you've been speaking about Noma, um, how, do, how do they you know, use those locally sourced ingredients to actually drive more profitable offerings? I think one of the magical things about using locally sourced ingredients is one from a strategic and customer experience perspective, you're able to offer a really high quality and amazing product. But from a portfolio structure and margin building perspective, you're also able to cut down on some of the distribution and transport costs mm. as well. So by uh, sourcing something locally, you may be able to buy in smaller quantities, which means that you don't uh, have the risk of food waste or, or, or um, raw material waste if you're not selling through all the items within the day. Um, and also the transportation costs of just getting it from the market to your to your restaurant mm. as well um, can be cut down as well, which can, um, can also impact the margin structure. It's a real win-win, isn't it? Because the, the consumer feels like they're getting really fresh food that's come that day from a locally a local producer and and then it's also potentially better margins for the restaurant exactly and i think the wonderful thing about that as well is that you're able to build a nice relationship with that supplier as well and Mm. potentially over a longer period of time able to uh, negotiate different pricing as well um, if you sustain a longer term relationship with them and maybe do some things like advanced ordering which can cut down your price and uh, help build your margin structure long term not just through the seasons as well Mm. I think it also takes us to another really important part of portfolio structure within restaurants, which is um, understanding what your core offering is versus what your innovation yes. or just other elements are. Yeah, well, I, I think this is this is really, really fascinating because when you look at w- what your unique selling point is as a restaurant versus the type of restaurant or cafe that you are and what are the core offerings that you're expected to have. So uh, let's make up an example. I've got a cafe at Bondi Beach and you know, I my I sell most of my food through that breakfast brunch sort of time. Now I might be a, a Turkish cafe and have all these specific dishes um, from from Turkey, but but as a cafe in Bondi ser- serving brunch, I need to have avocado and toast. And it's 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 a great sort of trade off of how far you go and and how many people are going to come to your restaurant purely for its unique selling point versus having avo and toast where they what 
which they have everywhere when they go to breakfast. Yeah, definitely. And I think as well, um, it's really important to consider the location of and how your location can change that core offering. Um, we know in Sydney, in some areas, they're quite well known for vegetarian options mm. um, and understanding that, you know, if you are in a certain suburb where there might be a higher uh, density of, of vegetarian eaters, and it's really important to have not just the single token vegetarian option as part of your core, but quite an extensive array of vegetarian options that um, can help your cafe grow. Um, another way to do that as well is through the um, idea of add-ons as well. So that if you are building a core, um, you can also have your customers uh, level up or create their own innovations on the menu mm. um, with different add-on items to uh, keep them satisfied as well. I like what you said about vegetarian options and how, how important that is because this is actually an opportunity rather than a, than a problem of having to change your menu for vegetarians. If you look at other trends like gluten-free as well as fully vegan, if, if you start to incorporate those into your menu, uh, you can actually charge a premium for those because you're known as the place that, that people go. And, and there's a great example of that. Actually, in Surrey Hills in Sydney, uh, there's a restaurant called Yuli's. Mm. And Yuli's is a vegetarian, vegan restaurant. Yeah. Uh, but actually, they charge a, a quite a high price for this food because people know that they can go there. But then it's also appealing because the food's very interesting for people who aren't necessarily vegan who might enjoy the experience anyway. Yeah, no, definitely. And it's... um. It's, it's really interesting to, to take the idea of growing your business by growing your core approach into cafes. So understanding that vegetarian and uh, avocado and toast, for example, might be a really big part of cafes as a core at the moment. Um, as those trends shift, it's also important to understand and move with those trends as well to make sure your, your core is kind of always relevant as well. Mm. Um, so yeah, really, really interesting. Well, it's, it's you know, talking about uh, your core offering and how you mentioned location might actually uh, change what your core offering is. I think this this actually goes into both your food, but also the type of uh, restaurant or cafe that you have and, and the ambience of it and the service. There's a great example uh, of Messina Ice Cream and their their flagship store is, is in a street that's full of bars and clubs. And, and so obviously it's all about the great quality ice cream that they have, but the way that they've fitted out the store and, and the ambience of it is, is very cool. So there's loud pumping music when you go in there. So you actually feel like you're walking into a nightclub. So what they've understood is that there are people stumbling out of bars and clubs around there. And this is almost an attraction. They might actually think it's a, a nightclub mm. that they're walking into, but then it's just delicious ice cream. Um, but then, you know, when you go in there, it's dimly lit. You feel like you're on a dance floor. So I think it's an example of how you can actually use your location and what's around you to tailor the experience to the, to the primary customer that's coming in. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think um, making sure that you are kind of not only aware of your surroundings, but also enhancing that. I think the wonderful mm. thing about um, the Messina example is that like if you are out for a night out, you hear the music going, that experience continues. Mm. Um, whereas, for example, some beachside restaurants will really tap into their view, which again, sounds like quite a basic concept, but um, you could kind of easily forego the design of your restaurant and the overall experience to not really enhance and uh, capture all those surroundings. So there's an awesome restaurant called Sean's Panorama in uh, Bondi. And the fantastic thing about that is that they've actually designed their entire outfit of their restaurant to really ensure that kind of everyone on the table gets a view of the beach and the atmosphere, mm. which in turn brings a really lovely ambience and 
keeps people coming back. And and it goes back to core. If if you don't think of core as just being the food that you offer, your core is your location or your view. How do you dial that up as the selling point for your business? It's the same if you go down to Coogee Beach. I challenge you to find a cafe on that strip in front of Coogee Beach that actually has phenomenal food or food that's better than than usual cafes. But what they all have is they've opened up all the windows. So if, even if you're sitting inside, you still feel like you're right. You sit, feel the sea breeze coming on. They all have outdoor seating as well. So yeah. another example of how they can really dial up that core um, proposition. Yeah, no, definitely. I think um, the idea of uh core and your, and your portfolio in, in terms of both your actual products that you're offering but also the experience is so important and it's one of those things that we also see in McDonald's uh, mm. that McDonald's uh, understood that it's one of the few places as a restaurant quote in quotation marks <laughs> that you can kind of go to and dine in by yourself and it's not very socially taboo to do so mm. like it's fine to do it in a lot of restaurants but um, it's maybe something you see lesser than uh, in, in McDonald's. Yeah. So the, the cool thing is that they have kind of automated a lot of their experiential processes to enable people to go in and comfortably dine by themselves. Yeah. You see those uh, these awesome... The touch screens. The touch screens, yeah. yeah, that people, you know, you can go in with headphones on, listen to your favorite marketing podcast <laughs> and, uh, and uh, order food, sit down, have it be delivered to you, kind of all undisturbed and have a quite a really solo dining experience. Mm-hmm. And they really understand that it's one of those places or a few places where you can do that quite easily. Um, And they've really capitalized on it and and have have tailored their experience to enable people to do that if that's something they do want to do. Yeah, and and it's a real benefit from a business point of view as well because if they have the screens, there's less people serving, which means less overheads, which means better underlying profits uh, or they can switch the the role of those people who used to be taking orders to delivering the orders to the table that people ordered through the touch screen Mm. as well. 100%. I think it kind of leads into one of our next points which is around different touch points, right? Um, where like the most obvious touch points around the brand will, uh, or the restaurant will be within the restaurant itself. Yeah. But um, a lot of times you'll hear about a restaurant uh, through different means and different touch points. Yeah, I think I think this is a great point. And, and this is something that I found um, quite fascinating about restaurants is that if you look at search terms, what people are searching for when they're hungry and looking for food, you can see that there is, um, hold on, wait for it. <laughs> There's a 48% increase in people who are searching for unbranded food. So by that, I mean, they're, they're searching for pizza near me. So 48% increase year on year on those types of searches um, versus branded searches, which are only up 12%. So that's Domino's pizza near me. So I think that first digital touch point is when people are hungry, they're going to search for something. How are you going to rank there? How do you make sure that your pizza restaurant comes up first? No, definitely, and and the again it ties into the the concept of, of location and the interesting thing about that as well is that you also have to understand that a word of mouth as well is building on that mm. is that people are searching for actively going and searching for different restaurant options, but they're also hearing about them as well from different people. So, word of mouth is a, is a word that you know we've used for many 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 years in, mm. in marketing. Um, but it's one of those things that still reigns true that if you get a recommendation from yourself or from the internet it's still really, really prevalent. I think as well, like uh, building off touch points, um, although unbranded search terms are definitely growing, uh, user-generated content and specific Mm. branded content for restaurants on social media is really growing as well. Yeah, I feel like this is almost 
how restaurants are, are becoming famous these days is by having an offering that people want to take pictures of and create content that they put on their Instagram feed. I, I think about, there's a restaurant in Melbourne called Chin Chin. Mm -hmm. And to me, Chin Chin is famous for two reasons. One, people have photos from Chin Chin, either them at the restaurant with the neon sign out the front. And two, people talk about the line that you have to wait in to, to get into Chin Chin. I've never actually heard anyone tell me about what the food is specifically like. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think um, the really interesting thing is that it also applies to a lot of takeaway restaurants as well. Um, when you uh, see people from, for example, when Starbucks every year will launch their new holiday or uh, Christmas style takeaway cups mm. in their new branded packaging, uh, you see a lot of uh, social media comments or, or posts of people uh, posting the new cup and kind of driving purchase back to the store because people are creating their own content to use for the site. And I think that if we start to build this into a user journey of someone who might be coming to your Starbucks or Domino's, they've, they've maybe seen that content on their Instagram feed and that's, that sort of triggered them to go, oh, cool, Starbucks has new cups. Mm. Um, or maybe they've just seen a cool picture of a restaurant, but they're not quite sure what it is. And then the next step for them is to go, you know, that search is, it, where's my nearest Starbucks or, or where's my nearest coffee shop or pizza place? And, and you start to see how these touch points link with each other before you even get to the store and have that in-store experience. No, definitely. And I think um, one of the awesome things about the touch points is that it leads to our next point, which is around distribution. You know, if you're a takeaway restaurant um, and sometimes even a dining restaurant, you can increase your distribution outside of your restaurant by enabling delivery services and delivery apps coming to your food. Mm. But it's kind of hard to increase distribution outside of a physical site if you're a restaurant that offers an in-restaurant uh, dining experience only. Mm. Um, so we had a little bit of a look at this and see how we could maybe grow distribution or uh, increase distribution for restaurants of those types. Yeah, well, the fir first thing I'll say just before we do that is that uh, delivery is expected to double in size by 2022. So the delivery business globally is, is meant to double and that's obviously facilitated through Uber Eats and, and the like. Yeah, it's um, it's really growing at a rapid rate. And I know <laughs> that from my own personal account, it's growing a lot more than it probably should. Yeah. Um, and the awesome thing is that that can also um, increase the, the time of usage as well. Um, and a lot of times, a lot of restaurants have enabled for that growth by offering different processes within their restaurant to mm. allow for delivery uh, pickups to not really disrupt the in-dining experience as well. Yeah. Whether that's through kind of like a backdoor uh, delivery and pickup location from restaurants or um, just having it kind of seamless and outside and having a person that runs out the delivery kind of discreetly and quietly it kind of, you see them almost as two different streams within the restaurant experience. Yeah, because if, if your sort of key selling point for your restaurant is the ambience and the service when you dine in, how do you translate that into delivery? Or do you have a completely different offering? Because as you said, delivery may not be up there for a lot of these high-end restaurants, these booking restaurants, but given the growth of, of delivery, you, you start to think that they have to adapt to this, this trend and, and actually have an offering in delivery. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the other way we looked into uh, increasing distribution is through uh, the use of uh, third-party reservation booking sites. So, for example, things like OpenTable um, and also Dimmy.com, mm. which enable people to uh, book uh, reservations kind of from their phone or in, at a future date and kind of also learn about new restaurants through those apps themselves. Yeah, the, the, you know, I had a, a real experience with uh, OpenTable on Friday, I booked a booked a lunch for the coming Friday, uh, and they just do it better. 
than restaurants, <laughs> to be honest. I The experience was phenomenal. It was super quick. I went to the restaurant's website, but then it linked straight into Open Table, which was embedded in their website. So I didn't have to go onto another mm. page. And Open Table sent me a reservation follow up of my booking instantly on text message and email and they're going to send me a reminder well I'll let you know how it goes this week but they're going to send me a reminder letting me know i've got my lunch tomorrow and, and what time and everything so actually i think it was just better <laughs> than most restaurants do bookings yeah it's it's um it's interesting as well because it's almost like through uh those third party services and and you being able to um book online with them like it's almost like there's a flow on effect of you perceiving the restaurant to be of a really high quality as well. And also like mm. it's starting your user experience with them on a really good foot. Exactly. It's, it's one of those digital touch points we talked about. And, and it makes me really want to talk about an example I found of someone who I, I admire a little bit, Gordon Ramsay. And, and he has this, uh, I guess, this way of working, which he centralizes all of those sorts of tasks like bookings, printing of menus, any sort of customer service outside the restaurant into one office in London that runs all of his restaurants around the UK. And, and what that does is it frees up the people in the restaurants to focus on what their key task is, which is either customer service, greeting customers when they come in, being fully aware of what they may need, uh, or if they're working in the kitchen, just focusing on the food. And, and I just thought that was a fascinating way of, of something that's come out of the restaurant business that we can apply to other types of businesses as well is that how do you hack those really sort of mundane but important tasks and make sure that they're done really well is it using a third party for your reservations is it having a centralized business unit that takes that off of the plate of people so they can focus on if you're in sales selling yeah. with, with their customers um, how do you how can you do that to improve your overall uh, business yeah, definitely. And, and, and it lets people focus on like the, the most important parts of their core and their portfolio. Another um, uh, uh, concept we will discuss was uh, the importance of third-party awards. So mm. for some restaurants, they may be more important than others. So for some high-end restaurants, they kind of live and die by the Michelin star rating system, um, where kind of with a third-party award, you can know whether or not this restaurant is, I guess, good or bad, or if it's going to meet your criteria of what experience you're looking for. Mm. Um, but I guess depending on the scale or, or the type of restaurant you are, those, those third party awards or validations can come from different sources. So I, I, I think that the Michelin star is, is great because it's an immediate price increase. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as you get that, you know, that star or that hat or whatever award you get, you all already have justification to put your prices up because people are now going there for the experience of going to a Michelin starred restaurant and and the price is now a secondary thing. They're, they're willing to pay for that. Yeah, definitely. And um, I think whether you're a, a Michelin star restaurant or maybe you're a smaller cafe that got uh, an award from a smaller scale blog, uh, people searching for those experiences may be able to find you a lot easier mm. through the third party awards, um, own kind of distribution and, um, and uh, content. Uh, platforms yeah and even things you know like tourists coming into a city they're, they're not going to know what restaurants or cafes to go to but if they go to you know your timeout.com or your concrete playground if you're ranked in there as one of sydney's top 10 cafes by the beach then you've immediately got another touch point which is really positive for people to find out about your restaurant um, without actually knowing who you are or anything about restaurant the restaurant scene in sydney yeah definitely and i think um, not to stress if you're kind of working through a restaurant or um, a cafe that 
doesn't really have access to a third-party award. Um, it's definitely a strategy you can think about trying to tap into and, and access and see those avenues to getting towards. But um, at the end of the day, it's it might not be the thing to make or break your restaurant, um, but an awesome strategy to employ if you uh, have access to maybe starting to hack that process a little bit. Exactly, exactly. Um, and and there's there's some really interesting ways that you can do this outside of Michelin stars or or local awards or even being mentioned in your in local blogs. And I think that's we started to see a lot of food documentaries that that focus specifically on restaurants. So the big one is Chef's Table that yep. goes through that big San Pellegrino top fifty restaurants. I think it is. Um, but you also have uh, documentaries like uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi uh, about that really famous sushi stand in in Japan. Yeah, and I think um, it, it taps into that concept of the brand CEO. So the leader of your brand or your business being kind of uh, the embodiment of what you're all about and kind of using that as a platform for promotion. Mm. So I think a really interesting one uh, we looked into was uh, Rene Redzepi, who's the head chef of uh, Noma. Um, and you look at a lot of the different documentaries and pieces of media that have been done on Noma and that allows people to really learn and be really involved in the story and uh, the decision process to potentially dine there one day. And it also helps them to tap into future consumers that, you know, in the horizon may keep that into their consideration set when looking for a restaurant or a really special dining experience in the future. Yeah, it's it's almost like it, not even just the owner, but, oh, but the, the chef. Like yeah. if the chef is famous, it almost that person is the human face of the restaurant and embodies what the restaurant is about. And it's almost very luxury marketing in a way yeah. what we talked about last week, which is that people identify with that person or that chef and they want to eat there because of that. Yeah, hundred percent. And it's um, if you're a smaller scale restaurant, you know, a way you could maybe go about that is by having a really small production budget of making a really small uh, documentary. If it's just a short length about um, your cafe or your restaurant, and just posting on YouTube and, and driving people towards it, um, and just creating a little bit of story and, and a narrative mm. about um, about your restaurant. Yeah, or even you know, know your audience. If you're a cafe that attracts a lot of young people, or your Messina ice cream, who gets a lot of young people who have stumbled out of clubs, um, you know, use the format that's going to speak to them the most, like uh, Insta Stories or, or something like that, that they can sort of follow your story about your restaurant and your craft along the way and get get more involved. Yeah, definitely. I think um, another really interesting. Uh, uh, pillar as well will be around um, the art of the collaboration, just something we're starting to see both mm. from high-end restaurants and kind of quick service restaurants and fast food chains as well. Um, one of the really uh, one of the relevant ones we're looking at the moment uh, is for Hungry Jacks, who's recently have collaborated with Coco Pops mm. to make a dessert. And um, Mark, I had to do a lot of personal testing uh, of course. for this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And after extensive research. <laughs> Um, I think the, the really cool thing about the power of collaboration between brands is kind of leveraging audiences that match. Mm. So the really great thing about Hungry Jack's and, and Coco Pops combining for their restaurant is that Hungry Jack's is kind of core offering of making those really tasty foods and not shying away from maybe the unhealthier uh, side of the food equation. And collaborating with Coco Pops is also kind of a nostalgic and fun brand that people grew up eating. And they're both quite... A, like accessible price points and they're mm. both uh, accessible kind of on the flavor spectrum and creating uh, co-collaborated desserts on their menu is a really fun way to drive uh, awareness of both brands and, and really have a win-win for both. 
Yeah, I, I love what you, you were telling me about this last week. And uh, what were we saying? That every time Macca's launches like a healthy yeah. range, <laughs> Hungry Jacks has come out with like the most disgusting burger offering. <laughs> As they're like, we don't care. We're just here exactly. to have fun and taste good. And I feel like, yeah, that collaboration with Coco Pops makes a whole lot of sense. Exactly. And I think, um, while well, from a uh, QSR restaurant perspective, they've done it on a really big scale. It might be something that you could look uh, look into from a local perspective. If you're a small cafe and there's another business within your local area where both of your brands, uh, it would make a lot of sense and there would be benefits to combining both of your offerings. Might be something to consider. I think um, there's something we see a lot with uh, yoga studios and maybe health food cafes mm-hmm. where you can get a uh, an exercise trial pack and also get a voucher to go and try a smoothie on the menu, which is named after the yoga studio. Mm. Um, and it kind of drives this awesome circle uh, of traffic between both of your both of your brands, which make a lot of sense for both. Yeah, there, there might also be a business strategic intent in these collaborations. One that uh, sort of came to light a few weeks ago now was the collaboration between Messina Ice Cream, which we spoke about a lot, and Drumstick, um, which is a Peter's ice cream brand. And, and it's really it, like, fascinating to to see because it seems like for messina what they're getting out of it is more eyeballs on their quite small niche brand whereas drumsticks getting i guess uh uh i guess a collaboration with a brand that's going to raise the bar for them in terms of the quality of of their ice cream and and there's that real win-win there of messina might be looking to open stores in other cities and it'll be very expensive for them to open that shop front market it to the local community to get their name out there whereas this gives them millions of people who will know their, their name brand and now they can go into cities and just launch and everyone will know what they're about and there'll be a crowd from day one yeah definitely i think um learning about some of these concepts mark like if we were to uh open up or, or expand on let's say a cafe mm. like what are some things that uh we should think about if uh we were looking to optimize a cafe yeah so good question i think so let's say we're opening a cafe Bondi Beach. Nice. So first thing, know what your core is and what your audience wants. So I think we have to have Abo on toast. I think it's a given. Yes. I think uh, building off that, we'd also need to have like a single origin coffee offering. So a tiered approach to our portfolio where you have your your standard coffees, but then also maybe a more premium coffee offering as well on top of that because people maybe are quite knowledgeable about that in, mm. in the area. Yeah, certainly. And, and also, if we think about that from a, a mix point of view and, and profit margin, we were saying that, you know, you take the single origin coffee, which means that you usually have it black or as an espresso. You really don't want to muddy the waters with milk, which means pull out the cost of milk, but you can probably still charge the same price because of its single origin um, nature. Yeah, definitely. I think as well, uh, one of the areas of uh, cafes which are ripe for disruption would be uh, the usage occasions. So let's say in our, in our Bondi cafe that we're, we're looking to open, a lot of them are just open for like breakfast and a healthy breakfast and a healthy brunch or at the most maybe somewhere you go after you work out. But apart from that, I feel like cafes and breakfasts don't actually have a specific occasion tied mm. to them. So we know we know that for some restaurants we can go to celebrate maybe an anniversary or a dinner. Yeah, but or graduation, ca- or graduate. birthday. Yeah, yeah but we don't really have that for for cafes. It's still a little bit loose. So, um, I guess in a really beautiful location, it's quite a casual space. Maybe we could dial up the fact that it's a great place to take someone on a date. Mm. I, I think that you know the in the world of Tinder where everything's a bit creepy and you don't know who you're meeting up with. 
brunch it's in broad daylight <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is good so you sort of see the person and you can compare straight away to their profile picture um in in the in the light of day but but also yeah it's a it's a fairly uh, I guess low risk environment. It's not like it's in a dark club and no one knows where you are. So it could be a great um, dating spot. Yeah, definitely something to dial up. And I think um, on the on the if we think about the time you spend at a cafe as well, it's usually kind of under an hour, whereas dinners can sometimes go for a lot longer. Mm. It's also probably a great place for us to dial up, just catch up with that friend you maybe ha- you're still close with, but you haven't seen in maybe a bit longer than you should have. Mm. Um, it's probably a great place for us to like dial up that uh, occasion within our cafe as well. So I think importantly then we talked about uh, SEO and optimization for search. So you can take that and go, we want to be known as the place that's great for first dates or, or for catching up with mates. So, well, that was a nice slogan that rhymes. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, how do we have the content? So if someone says, you know, great place for a first date, we pop up first, or how do we buy against those terms? I, I think that would be really important so that we can hack occasions for our brunch cafe. Yeah, definitely. I think um, considering it, bringing it full circle back to portfolio structure might be an awesome way. We could also create maybe a bundle or a package to go with that as well. Mm. That you know we've got some items on the menu which is which are greatly and uh, greatly tailored to kind of bring up a few items to extend the process and and the time that you meet together. Mm. Um, there might be a, a, a smoothie and a breakfast combination as well as a coffee offering, which you can kind of optimize to uh, to increase the margin. Of yeah, that. or like a, a sharing platter. Yeah, you know, that, that might be have some really high margin products on there as well, some low margin, but because they're buying into a platter, they sort of get everything. Yeah, mm. exactly it. Well, I think uh, it's time for us to uh, open up this cafe. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Why, why are we sitting here recording? <laughs> um, so let us know uh, your thoughts in the comments um, about restaurant marketing. If you uh, have any other thoughts or, or suggestions that we can include in our, in our learning. Mm. Yeah, no, really cool part part of marketing, and and as we said, it's it's um it's something that uses all the normal sort of levers of marketing, but just in quite a different way, specifically to restaurants. Yeah, exactly. It. Uh, now, Mark, we also we always know that in order to do uh, great marketing, we need to be doing interesting things in the wider world and, and bringing it back to to our strategies. Um, what have you found uh, interesting this week? What's been going on? So last week you spoke about taking cold showers and, and how that's been going well for you. So I was really curious. So Monday morning, had my first cold shower and I'm proud to say that I did it Monday through Friday. Oh, wow. Uh, so reporting back, uh, l- my shower's been a lot shorter. So yeah. better for the environment. <laughs> uh, I found that the first two to three days, I was sort of like dancing under the shower and being a bit like, oh, this is so uncomfortable. I just want to get out. But... To the point you made, I felt great afterwards. It was really revitalizing first thing in the morning when I get into work. Um, and and by Thursday and Friday, I was actually enjoying standing under in the cold water and, and just embracing it. It was almost like a meditation, uh, which was yeah, cool. Wow. However, I did break it on Friday night. I sail on Friday nights out on the harbor, which is yeah, a nice. lot of fun. And there was a big storm on Friday. So afterwards, I, I did have a hot shower. <laughs> I think well deserved. <laughs> but, but another cold one this morning. So feeling good. Yeah, nice. Well, um, How about you? Yeah, well, welcome, welcome to the club. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, luckily, I'm I'm still going strong in the cold showers as well, and um, but and luckily I haven't gotten sick yet, so we'll uh, we'll see how long it, we'll see how long we keep going. Um, this week I uh, I rediscovered and tapped into an, uh, an old hobby. Um, I uh, I went surfing this week, oh, which nice. is really lovely. Yeah, um, it was my first surf in a little while, and um, it was nice to get the dust the board off and, and get back mm. into the open ocean. I think that. 
it's it made me reflect that it's one of the few pastimes or activities you can do where you kind of you literally kind of leave the land like you, 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 you <laughs> it's correct. very it's yeah. very it's very existential <laughs> but yeah you're you're out in the middle of the ocean and i'm sure you probably feel a similar way about about sailing and um it kind of just gives you this amazing perspective to reflect on things so i think when i was younger surfing was a lot more about like surfing the biggest waves and and doing the high most uh intense high performance maneuvers mm. but I think after after a long week, it was something about getting out in the middle of the ocean and, and using it as an amazing thinking exercise as much as an awesome way to, to stay active. Yeah, I, so I call it the full stop to the end of the week on a Friday night when I go sailing because yeah. you, you're right, you do actually get off the land, whether that's necessary or not to this type of activity, I don't know, <laughs> um, but it is a common theme. Uh, but then you're... You, it, like for you, it literally washes away the the stresses of work and just really puts you into that mode that you're no longer at work, you're ready for the weekend. And, and that's why I really like it. Yeah, definitely. It's um, it's an awesome, another strategy to, to keep in the, the toolbox, but possibly could do something that makes you happy. So Yeah, yeah. well, there's there's one other thing I'll say, which is sort of tapping into that, that sort of what makes you feel good and, and those passions that you need to make sure you have time for. And the reason I'm telling you now and recording it is so I don't, chicken out um so i have tentative tentatively uh signed up to do a sailing race up in queensland in may and it's, it's going to be my first sort of big uh race uh it's a two-day event from from tin cam bay to harvey bay uh it sounds like it's going to be amazing but you know I'm, I'm a fairly inexperienced sailor um and for me it's going to be you know it's, it's going to be a big big task for me so i'm kind of nervous but excited and i think you know, you just have to sometimes just go for it. So hold me accountable and, um, you know, hopefully by May I'll be telling you some great stories. Yeah, well, we can't wait. Hopefully we can do a, uh, an episode from, from the boat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that will go. I don't know. It depends how much rum I've had. I I'm think. sure the uh, audio quality will be great. Yes. <laughs> With the wind, I'll, I'll, how about I'll paddle out into the surf um, and, and you go out on the boat and we'll try and record it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that will go well. <laughs> no, but mate, I think it's going to be an awesome experience. And I think um, the people you meet, uh, on that as well be amazing yeah. and I think um, whether it's uh, through that sailing experience but also me reconnecting with some old, uh, some people in the surf as well like really important to be meeting people from all walks of life and, and using that to really understand your consumer and, and your person and bringing that back to your work when you can as well mm, exactly nice way to pull it back to, to what we do here yeah exactly well um, that's it for another episode yeah, uh, yeah l- let us know if you have any questions and see you next week yeah see you next week thank you for listening bye bye